This is Strange Assembly episode 267, Gen Con 2019, The Role-Playing Games. I'm Chris Stevenson. I'm here today with Jay Earl. Hello! And this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can also find us at the usual social media. We're at Strange Assembly on Twitter, Strange Assembly on Instagram, Strange Assembly on Facebook. We're also Strange Assembly on Patreon. And I do want to uh, extend a continued uh, big thanks to the people who support us there. But Jay and I are back from Gen Con 2019. And instead of my usual let's open the Gen Con episode by just saying it's Gen Con 2019 and then getting further in and realize it actually needs to be three episodes. We're just going to go ahead and acknowledge in advance this is going to be more than one episode. We're going to split it up by subject matter this year. So as you might have guessed, I know, oh my gosh, I know. Like rather than just like reading through my notes in chronological order, I some more different organizational structure. Who would have thought? So yeah, this one we're going to go with the role-playing game side of things. And then the next episode will be the board and card game side of things, there's going to be a little bit of bleed over. So, for example, you know, there's not just some Vampire the Masquerade stuff. Uh, There's also, for the actual role-playing game, there's a variety of Vampire the Masquerade board and card game things going on. But I think it makes sense that, you know, if you're interested in Vampire the Masquerade, you want to hear about all of that. So that'll get lumped in. But we are going to kick off today, since I led into Gen Con by going on about how Pathfinder 2 is a big old deal. I figure I should just go ahead and start off with that. Pathfinder 2nd Edition did release uh, at, as I, I, I say that like it's news, right? As expected, I mean, they only had a bajillion copies of it there. It, it did release uh, at Gen Con 2019, and I played twice, which is a pretty significant chunk of time at Gen Con to play one thing, although one of them was I actually played overnight, which is a dumb thing to do, by the way, and everyone who's there knows that it's a dumb thing to do, for the most part. Although I realized that, have you ever, you do D&D, but not do Pathfinder, right, Jay? Yeah, I have did Pathfinder a couple times, but it's one, of, it's one of those, I'm a very social gamer, and I've never found a group that's doing Pathfinder to push me into it, so no, I've, I've not really done Pathfinder. Yeah, so they write, they take over the whole Sagamore ballroom, they being Paizo for uh, Pathfinder, Starfinder, Pathfinder Adventure Card Game up there, and they have a 2 a.m. slot for the role-playing game. So they're five-hour slots, the game is, it usually doesn't take five hours, it's not designed to, but that gives the GMs a little bit of a break uh, between the sessions, but there is a 2 a.m. slot, it's a very um, loopy sort of slot, everyone acknowledges in advance that everyone is kind of necessarily sleep-deprived. Although I did realize it's kind of useful if you're someone who attends on a one-day pass, which is something I've never done at Jet Cut, so I don't really think about this. If you have like just a Saturday pass or just a Sunday pass or something like that, it lets you show up at one in the morning and just play all day long. You know, you can actually do a 2 a.m. slot and then that takes four or five hours and then show up for more ticketed things starting at eight. Just very efficient. And I do appreciate efficiency. Yes. And I mean, it's a con. So normal social things like sleep and bathing and other things like that are optional. So no, no, no. (laughs) 
S okay, S sleep is optional. Let let me make this very very clear. And I know Jay was joking, but yes, yes. bathing is in fact not optional. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've been to some cons. I've been to the gaming rooms. I'm pretty sure, based on that experience, that bathing is optional. It's not. You you just not. you just replace it with Febreze and or nope. X body spray. Nope. Nope. I don't care. If there are six people in your hotel room, which I get why you have six people in your hotel room, because the hotel room is really expensive if you're right there downtown. I, I don't care if there are six people in your hotel room. I don't care if the hotel doesn't actually own enough towels. Bring your own. Make time. Get it done. It's not optional. It is not optional. The fact that there are occasionally people who don't follow these rules does not mean it's not a rule. It's a rule. That's actually not something I've really experienced a problem with at Gen Con, but I'm not saying it never happens, yeah. but I don't think it's like a big prevalent thing. No, I have not experienced it at Gen Con. Not at Gen Con, but at, at some of the smaller ones. Well, we're, we're at about the biggest one. I think there were, well, there, there were unsurprisingly 70,000 unique people at Gen Con because they cap it. So it, it's, it has not gone up because they have stopped letting it go up. Yeah, because where else? There's not room for any more people. There, there aren't. There aren't. And they actually, uh, I mean, I know we're diverting already off of, because it's us. Yeah, yeah. Off of the, 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 yes, the schedule here. But I, I did notice that, like, they actually continue to find ways for the exhibit hall to expand. The sort of smaller publisher end of the exhibit hall, which I think of as East, but I actually don't know. I, I, I now realize I'm not sure what the actual directional orientation of the convention center is. But, you know, the side that's further away from the Maryland corner entrance by the mall where I always park. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, that, that kind of like, right, that used to be all tournament stuff space. And then several years ago, they expanded to make that more exhibit hall. And now it kind of comes down, like if you're looking at the map further down or south into, I mean, further intruding into the, you know, Hall A, Hall B, Hall C area where there's tournament stuff. I I do feel that, I, I mean, this is colored by the fact that it's certainly true for me personally, but, like, tournament gaming does seem to be less of a thing in the, the same way. I mean, there, there, there's still lots of tournament gaming... Like for board games uh, and stuff, where you can you know play in tournaments in a way, but for the sort of giant organized multi-hundred player sorts of events, I mean, Fantasy Flight still has their stuff going on, but their very biggest world champion kind of stuff is now done at their own thing, and it just seems that a lot more of that space, like the exhibit hall, has crowded into it, and then there are just like companies who have different sections of it reserved off for ticketed demos now i mean not that that hasn't always been the case but it seems like more and more of the space is devoted to that do you get that sense yeah it does feel that way i'm i honestly would not be surprised if in like five years that whole area is exhibitor hall and all of the tournament stuff is over in uh, lucas oil or somewhere else wherever else they can cram it for the first time i i actually did an event in in lucas oil so that was different but that wasn't Pathfinder. So uh, this is not the place for like a full breakdown of Pathfinder. There's a written review already on our website. I, I suspect that at some point we'll have an entire podcast episode. Sorry, Jay, you won't be on that one. 
That's okay. about Pathfinder Second. <laughs> I don't have to be on all of them. I like listening to them occasionally. <laughs> yes, and I really like Pathfinder Two. In broad strokes, it's a lot of what was there when we got Pathfinder Playtest last year. A lot of the things that are different are so getting into like the true playtesting aspects of things that it, you know you would never want to sit down and do a podcast about it or even I mean to to write about it. You know you'd be really for in an, in in the weeds Pathfinder audience. But they there also definitely were things that were broader framework things that they changed or got rid of based on feedback. They had this system of, you know, how many points you got to try to, like, uh, attune to magic items, and they changed that to just being a flat thing because people didn't like tracking it. They they tweaked the original PF2 death and dying rules because it turns out that once you started rigorously playtesting what they have, it kind of got weird at places, and when people are dying or not, that's, you know, important. Yeah, just a smidge, yeah. Yeah, so I, I got to play twice. I played in the the special for PF2 for Junka. Now, this is not the same kind of special that you traditionally have for the, the Paizo things, where you, like, the entire SAG ballroom is just the one game, and they've got all the sound effects and stuff up on the screens... The game just came out, and you're using... And it was it was 5th level pre-gens. So I did that one. I, I enjoyed it. Despite the fact that, like, right, it was pre-gens. There were six of us at the table. Six players and a GM, that is. And we sit down, and there are six pre-gen options. And, you know, you're having this, oh, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I... And my one thing is anybody but Fumbus. <laughs> right? Because Fumbus is a goblin, and Pathfinder goblins are a whole thing, and people like them. Not really my thing. So Fumbus is a goblin as the iconic alchemist. Alchemist as a class, not really sort of my thing. I don't know why, honestly, but right, they, they make, they do like potion stuff, right? They can either focus on throwing bomb, bomb potions, basically, or drinking mutagens that change their own stats. I'm just like, anybody but Fumbus. So, I mean, of course, I wouldn't say that if I hadn't ended up with... Fumbus. Yes. Yeah. So, thank you, Table. I appreciate your consideration. Mm-hmm everybody's kind of like newish to the final version. I don't really do Alchemist. I'm like going through the book trying to figure out what Fumbus is. I did work Goblin Poetry into the session, so <laughs> there's that. Kind of inflict on your teammates some, some proper Vogon poetry in response to getting stuck with the Goblin. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's not so much poetry as like songs and chants is, is like a thing. It's usually about pillaging and, and burning and stuff. And one of the one of the sort of side effects of making goblins a standard playable PC race is to, or ancestry, as they're called in Pathfinder 2 now, uh, which is really a better term, <laughs> honestly, is that you have to you have to broaden them. It's it's kind of interesting, like uh, the sort of funny, destructive, moronic stuff that made them like interesting, popular, like as as a species, right? Because one of the things that Pathfinders, I think that they've made an effort to do is kind of provide more of a distinctive flavor to your different generic, like goblins feel really different from orcs, feel really different from kobolds kind of thing. But like you have to rub some of that off the player character goblins, like it just, because it just doesn't work very well. So you have to be normal. But I figure one of the things you can still do is 
have them do this some sort of chinging, singing chanty thing. So I had him effectively speak in poetry for some of the uh, social occasions. Not good poetry, mind you, because I was the one coming up with it. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I hey. feel like that is correct for a goblin as well. Yes, yes. It actually went over well. The, the GM in particular liked it. So that was good. That's good uh, it, yeah. it, it actually helped the team out, which is important, right? Because you you want to help the team out, right? So, and in my in my overnight showing, there was a player who we actually got to make our own characters. For the, like this one, we were using our own. I mean, both of these were Pathfinder Society events. So, mm-hmm. I in addition to whatever I should really know, but I don't know what it is. Like the whatever credit I get for like doing playtest scenarios. With Pathfinder Society, like, you know, I've got, yes, my first PF2 Pathfinder Society character is now two-thirds of the way to leveling up! Oh my gosh! Even though I've only played her once. You get to apply the credit for, like, the one where you use the generics to the the character. Apparently, I still want to play rogues? I don't know. I don't... So, that was my... But there was a goblin in the second game where I had a little bit more of the goblins or morons still in that character. It's a little... like Like, the sort of, like... Okay, we're we're going to this place. Oh, we should break in. Well, let's just try knocking first. Okay, we knock. All right, they answer the door. What are you doing? I'm over trying to break in. Ah! You're not even trained in that skill. Or maybe I'm just a wet blanket. Who knows? But Pathfinder 2 mechanically works out very well. It's interesting. I think it streamlines things and simplifies things a little bit bit more than is easy to realize if you're an established Pathfinder 1 player, because you, you or we, as like someone who's played Pathfinder 1 a lot, you get used to the sort of the idiosyncrasies and the exceptions and the way this works differently in that situation than the other. And so when you go to a system where some of those little quirky corners aren't there, for you there's still this exercise in essentially unlearning. You know, you must unlearn what you have learned. Yes. Whereas if you were a fresh carrot player picking it up, you would never know that it used to be different, and it would just be more straightforward now. So I think that works fairly well. So I still heartily recommend Pathfinder 2. It's out there. Everything is out there and available to buy right now. Uh, it's got a core rulebook. There is no separate Game Master's Guide. It's, the core rulebook for Pathfinder is massive. And you still have a bajillion character creation options. I mean, that's an exaggeration. Eventually you will, but you have a lot of character creation options. The bestiary is out. The first adventure path campaign thing is out. The condition card supplement is already out, which is, I think, possibly the most helpful accessory ever are those condition cards. for Because Pathfinder is very big on conditions. They actually have the essentials kit, the thing that replaced the starter kit. They actually have condition cards right there in the starter product. <laughs> That's a good place for them, yeah. It's just kind of like a temporary set of them to use there, but like for, for both of these games, it's just, I don't know about you, but trying to keep track of what it means to be staggered versus exhausted versus prone versus whatever. And so you can just, uh, you know, just having those cards to like, oh, you know, you got knocked down. Bam, here's the card that says for that. Oh, you're. I don't know, you're asleep, ma'am. Here's the card that says exactly how that works under exactly what circumstances you wake up. You know what happens when you do... Anyhow, that should all be available at your friendly local game store. Obviously, it's available online. 
And having talked for like, you know, half of how long this episode should be about the one game, please make me shut up, Jay, and talk about something else. That sounds about par for our podcast, yeah. Yes, it is, but still. Okay, so a little bit of a a stretch to put this in with RPGs, but one of the things that I did this year at Gen Con was I did a couple of different cosplay things. So one of the things, I don't know if people are aware, Gen Con has a whole bunch of little seminars and little crafty things that you can do. Like last year I went and did an event where learned how to sword fight for an hour. I mean, as much as you can learn in an hour with 50 people in a room using PVC pipes on each other. This year I got more crafty. So one of the first one I'm going to talk about was much more straightforward. It was more just a let loose and do what you want. It was cosplay guns, uh, making steampunk or ray guns. So basically this is, they've got one of the little conference rooms in the convention center. You go in, they've got a bunch of, they're basically just dollar store squirt guns that they've spray painted black or white as your base. And then they've got a whole bunch of, they've got paints so you can paint them. They've got all sorts of little fiddly bits that you can glue onto the gun. And then there's a couple people running it that you could ask for help and get questions. But this one was mostly just set you loose, do whatever you wanted. And so it was a nice way to spend an hour, hour and a half just in a room making making these little guns. It was a nice also introduction to a bunch of different materials. They had they had some very fancy paints that they had gotten donated, so Mine ended up pretty sparkly because I used a glitter paint on one of the guns and then I used this color changing paint on another one. So it's it looks cool as you rotate the gun. It, the, the color seems to shift and change. And so, yeah, that was that was basically it was was making cosplay guns and and having fun getting covered in paint. <laughs> I wish I had seen you covered in glitter paint. I should have taken pictures, but I was too covered in glitter paint. I didn't want to touch my phone because it would still probably be covered in glitter paint if I had. (laughs) You just got to find someone else with a camera, Jay. That is no excuse. Everyone in the room had paint on them. (laughs) Whether they liked it or not, no. Cosplay obviously can be its own distinct thing, but I hear LARPing is still around, right? So I think we can lower that into getting into a, a role. So Pathfinder was not, Pathfinder 2 was not the only role-playing game I played at Gen Con. Magpie has been one of my uh, favorite smaller role-playing game publishers for the last couple of years, and they had a new game that came out at Gen Con called Zombie World. So I, I sat down and I, I had the chance to play that. Now, let me proviso this by noting that like zombies are not like my super favorite thing. So any liking of this is entirely separate from, you know, whether I'm, you know, into zombie horror survival uh, sorts of things. But this is set in a post-zombie apocalypse world, and it is a, a very quick and dirty startup sort of game. If you do it as a one-shot, it doesn't have all of these elements that it would in, in campaign mode. But one of the, the big thing is that although at an individual point in time, you have a 
particular character. You are not going to play that same character, very likely, over the entire course of a campaign because it is really about telling the story of your little enclave, which means that sometimes characters will die. And you will have new people come in from outside of your enclave, or you'll have background characters who have been developed as there, and then you can take over one of those. But it is because it is uh, about this story of the the whole thing, that doesn't mean that it's just you. I People keep making comparisons to Walking Dead when they're, like, explaining it, but since I've never seen that, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know. Wait, so they're comparing it to Walking Dead, so... It's fun for about 20 minutes, and then it starts getting repetitive and monotonous and disinteresting? No. Um, but people would make a reference to like a particular character having a signature bat that they hit people with, or I, I don't know. Or, or like, oh, the way that so-and-so showed up, or like this character got... Fr- that kind of thing. Got it. Okay. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a very, very heavily modified Power by the Apocalypse. It uses cards instead of dice. And so I enjoyed the overall framework. I know that some Powered by the Apocalypse folks might uh, react with horror at this, but I'm I'm a little less convinced about the the way that the card mechanic plays out because it makes the stat differences really enormous. Like instead of rolling 2d6 and you add one or zero or subtract one or add two, which can have more of a difference than you think because the usual target number for success is, or not the usual, the target number for success is a seven. So there's a big statistical hump there. So even a plus or minus one in a stat actually matters. But here you have a deck. And when you're trying to succeed, you pull a number of cards out of the deck equal to your modifier. So the modifiers start at one and go up to three for the normal normal people. But then there are other things that might give you a plus one. Well, the chances of succeeding if you just have a one in something are not good. Whereas you're almost guaranteed to succeed if you're pulling three or four cards. I, I yeah. mean, almost guaranteed that overstates it, but it's pretty hard to fail. Like, you, you're, your odds of failure, if, if let's say, it's not quite, but let's say half the deck is some variant of a success. It may be like a good success or a lousy success or something, but you're still... You're you're pretty unlikely to have four pulls in a row where you don't catch something. So that requires I know this is true of a lot of role playing things, like that that really requires that the players kind of like stay within the spirit of stuff and don't realize that like, oh wait a minute, my character's four in this stat means that I can basically win any fight ever and there's nothing anyone can do to stop me, because I will just always succeed. If I just respond to every provocation by saying, "Oh no, I just attack anyway," uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I wish I wish that had been a little bit more tightened up. But uh, I did like the, like the character, like the because you're not one given character. The character creation is basically like here's three cards, and one represents what your role is in this community, and one represents what you used to do in the past. It might be that the way that circumstances have fallen out, you know, your main job is, you know, is one of the beaters, like your, your muscle in the current settlement, even though you were like a school teacher back in your old life. And then you also have some hidden trauma or person, it's called a trauma, like, you know, character flaw or whatever 
that like if your character's stress level gets too high comes out. So everybody starts out knowing just your current role in the community and other players and characters may or may not ever find out that character's hidden past depending on how long they they go on. But that was uh, Zombie World from Magpie Games. If, uh, if if that sort of like ongoing kind of transience of characters interests you, I think that is worth checking out. Another role-playing game that I played was Sentinel Comics. Now, Sentinel Comics, right now there's a starter kit available. The game itself was already on Kickstarter. And they're essentially waiting for the art to get done before they can release the final book. It's from uh, Greater Than Games. Uh, There's actually a review from several months ago of the starter kit on, but it had been a bit since I did that. And that only has pre-generated characters. So one of the demos of the game you could do at their booth was going through a version of character creation. You can either do character creation with just the, like, you know, pick whatever you want, but there's also a guided, a semi-guided character creation, where it would be something like, there's a table of 20 options, and you roll 2d10, and then you can either pick the number on one die, the number on the other die, or adding the two dice together, and so it it's not something I would prob- I would want to do in a long-running campaign, but for sitting there at the booth, it was kind of, it was an interesting way maybe the only way you something like this to to demo character creation because it would take way too long to let people like try to read through an entire book to figure out all the options so it it you know this really focused it it down in on that you get to make some decisions but not just you know pick whatever you want willy-nilly so then having made a character i'm like ooh, now i can go play with a a character of my own that i have made so sentinel comics is a superhero game. Its the foundations are originally in the Cent- Sentinels of the Multiverse card game, which was a cooperative card game, which uh, by the time it was done had built up a, a really fairly detailed comic universe that you were then playing in in the the role-playing game. But every time that you you do something, you have a list of powers that your character has. You have a list of qualities that your character have, which are you know, anything about you that's not uh, a power. And then you have a status die, which can change based on how beat up you are or how bad the situation is. So then you roll those three dice, and under normal circumstances, you end up with, like, you end up taking whatever the middle roll is. So all of your powers and abilities and such are rated in terms of what die you're rolling. So let's say, like, if you're not that great, your power's not that strong, maybe it's only a D6. The status is everything's pretty hunky-dory, so maybe that's only a D6 for your character. But then, hey, you're really good at whatever this activity is in a mundane sort of way. So, okay, that one gets to be a D10. And then, you know, that obviously with that particular way, you're limited to a 6 as your highest result. But... It might be that when you're doing something that you're good at and the situation's really bad, now you're rolling like a D8, a D10, and a D12, and you're probably going to get something higher. I like the way that the it kind of models the genre in that the worse things get, the more powerful things your characters can do. 
You know, it's the like you're right. It might be the sort of thing if you're overthinking it, reading the comic. You're like, why didn't the hero just do that in the first place? You know, because then the story wouldn't be as interesting. You yeah. build up the sense of drama. Yeah, everyone knows the more torn up Spider-Man's suit is, the more powerful he is. That's how his suit works. <laughs> yes, as soon yes. As, he, as soon as you can see his face, it's it's all over. He, he can do whatever he wants. I I know. Well, and and one of the fun things you can do with that, and I've uh, now this is and right, this is not a mechanical thing, but both there are two of these do this, like the the masks role playing game from Magpie, and then Sentinel Comics from uh, Greater Than Games. Both encourage the game master to really phrase things in terms of how comics work. Mm-hmm. Talk about it in terms of like what the panel would look like in the comic. This sort of equivalent of experience points are uh, in Sentinel Comics are talked about as like back issues in your collection. <laughs> nice. So the the game master was doing that sort of thing, right? It would be like you got swarmed under and you got really attacked really badly. So, I mean, like, your costume is definitely torn now. <laughs> right? That's that's what it means to have taken damage. Like, you, you've got, like, that dirt on your face that, you know, we have instead of a big, gaping, bloody wound, because that's not how comic books work. No, no, uh, <laughs> so, I want to say that they were hoping to have the physical thing out by the end of this year. I, I mean, but it sounded like it was really, like, once the art gets done, but you can still you can check out the the starter kit for that now, and that's a you know an interesting different sort of thing. Anyhow, so that is that is Sentinel Comics. You can right now all you can check out is the starter set, but you can get a little taste that way. I guess I had one more role playing game that I played, and I'm gonna I guess I'll preface this thing. This is a little weird in that I I don't want to say what the game was because I had a I, like what I want to talk about with my experience really isn't about the quality of the game, and so I don't know that it's really I don't think it's really fair to like toss the publisher under. But I, I I don't know. Normally I like normally it's more I think it's more entertaining to talk about positive things. And I usually I have had a, a pretty good success, at least having decent, if you know, decent to great experiences with one shots uh, at conventions. But man, I I had been hoping to play one game on, I think it was Friday afternoon. I ended up not being able to do that, so I genericed into another RPG. And man, it was a so it was a, a relatively rules-intensive RPG, which already makes it a little hard to do as a one-shot. It was being run by a game master who had basically not been told in advance that this was the game that they were expected to run. Excellent. So, so publishers, organizers don't do that to your game masters. No. So, no. like, it's it's not that they didn't know anything about the system or anything like that, but they did. not I mean, like, especially when you have a very crunchy rules intensive system, like, and you're trying to teach people, you've got to know that. It also had a setting where the setting really mattered in a lot of ways. That then makes it even harder to explain. And that that is something that a an organizer can control. But then also, I, uh, I we sat down, and so there were several players who actually did know the setting and sort of knew the rules. And the the we we had pre generated characters, which is good because I like the way with like powered by the apocalypse games, you can kind of do the character creation right there and do some interesting narrative hooks and things. But with you know with a, big, a mechanically crunchy RPG like that, 
doesn't work as a one shot at a convention. So we had pre-generated characters, and the the game master had us go and say a little bit about like what would the you know give a, give us a brief rundown of what the background it gives for your character and what the other players would know. And the I'm going to do mine, and the player to my right starts making fun of me. Ooh, not good for this. And I'm like. One, even if I had come up with it, that's not cool. No. But two, it's a pre-gen. I'm summarizing the pre-gen's background. Like, <laughs> are you kidding me? So don't be that guy. No. I, I guess, like, don't be that guy. I mean, there was another player later on who was doing, who was, <sighs> who was making decisions that I think they, I think they were taken for the purpose of wanting their character to be able to do cool things that were then detrimental to everyone else. And it's not that you're required to, like, make everything, like, happy holding hands, kumbaya, fully co-op in an RPG. And it is certainly the case, right? They're, like, one of these, since I've got easy phraseology, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal some phraseology from the uh, Monty Cook's Your Best Game Ever which is the short version is basically make interesting choices, not smart ones. Yes. Right? Like, it's the sort of thing where, like, it matters that, like, something is within character, but that doesn't mean you have... Being in character doesn't mean you have to do the obnoxious thing or the boring thing. Like, come up with something that's in character and interesting or, you know... But, I mean, this is purely a mechanical sort of decision that has actually negative consequences, and they did this more than once. Like, there are other people at the table... Hey, both of these, I mean, both of these are different ways. Like, there are other people at the table, and even when you're a one-shot at a convention, like, don't be the person who is doing things in or out of character that mess stuff up for the other people at the table. I guess that's takeaway. That's, that's one of those things that's, like, should be wildly obvious, and I think is wildly obvious when you set it out like that, and yet... There's a thing. So, hey. Also, be nice to your game master. It's not their fault that they got assigned a game that they don't really know that well. (laughs) That's not not what they signed up for. Anyhow. Right, so I guess I had four different games that I actively played, like, full-on sessions of at Gen Con. And I had three positive experiences and then the one negative one. So I think that's a... Or I guess I had... I played PF2 twice, so I mean I had like four 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 that were good and then the one that was not so much, but that still seems like a pretty good ratio. Yeah. What else you got, Jay? Well, so the other cosplay seminar I did was a more hands-on workshop. Uh, no, I'm sorry, another hands-on workshop. This was working with thermal plastic. So this one I really liked. It was scheduled in for four hours. The first hour was the guy telling us about the material, how to work with it, things you can do with it, showing off different samples that he had. And then the last three were, we had, he gave everyone a sheet and, and we, we got to make whatever we wanted. I made a, a mask. So yeah, this, this is the type of thing I like that got to really learn about the material and how to work with it and things you can do with it and got 
got got to actually make the thing and get to experience and be like, okay. So for those that don't know, thermal plastic is the special plastic where if you take a heat gun to it, which is usually a thing used for stripping paint and heat it up, it becomes malleable and you can do whatever you can you can shape it and it'll stick to itself and and make it take a form and then once it cools down it's a plastic it ta- it retains the shape that you put it in so it was really cool too just seeing different people be creative with this and watch masks and bracers and somebody made a crown somebody else made butterfly wings for themselves and it was just a very cool class watching people make different different things out of this material so yeah i would i would definitely recommend if you have any interest in that these type of seminars are great for really getting some hands-on experience working with people that know the material that really know what's what they're talking about and can help you hands-on cuz yeah i thought that was the the best part was the the guy there really knew what he was talking about having questions i was able to go hey can you come help me what's what i'm doing here and a lot better than trying to learn this stuff from youtube which is what i've done before <laughs> yeah i believe that with that you are now officially infinity better than me at crafty i <laughs> I I think that's how it works out. I would have to check your numbers, but um, I'm I'm not going to disagree with your assessment of your current crafty level. (laughs) So, in addition to the role-playing games I actively played at Gen Gone, uh, I got the... You're right, you you also get the chance to talk to some people about things that have been going on or coming out or will be coming out in the, the future, and there were a few of those that I wanted to pass on so first i i had the chance to talk to stop at the i guess combo booth for q die games and gallant night games there's sort of this uh, there must be some like unofficial title for it i'm going to call it rpg row or something there was one of the sort of back ends in like for row the the 2000 or 2400 row or something like that where it was a bunch of rpg uh smaller rpg folks uh all in a row but one of these was Qdai and Gallant Knight, and if you have been with us Strange Assembly for some time, back when we were, you know, either lots of L5R or nothing but L5R, those may be of interest to you, because the person who runs Qdai Games is Sean Carmen, once the Legend of the Five Rings story team lead, and one of the people who works with Gallant Knight Games is Robert Denton, who formerly was of the AEG L5R story team, and is currently a one of the writers for the Fantasy Flight Legend of the Five Rings stories. Yes, I, I believe Robert Denton Three is writer. Yes, is is writer. I believe writing, graphic design, and and such. So I, the the main thing that uh, the Qdai had had come out before was Thunderscape. Thunderscape, the world of aiding, was based on a, an old video game. It was, I think, there was actually a Pathfinder 1 and or I mean really like OGL compatible version and then they had a Savage Worlds one but uh they've actually done a couple of kickstarters for smaller books this these are like all the rage lately is right like as is I don't know if it's quite an Ashcan edition but you know a, a you know smaller slimmer sort of role playing game uh and, and John 
Sean and Kyoto, I have come out of a couple of those, but the one that I thought was the most interesting, based on a, a fictional genre I know nothing about, really, which is called, like, lit RPG. Does that mean anything to you? You're more into these things sometimes than I, I am. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be literature, but I'm just thinking, yo, that's lit fam, which I am way too white to actually have said that phrase, but uh, that happened, so... Yeah, so I, I don't think it's that sort of lit. The role-playing game is then trying, you know, like, Im- embodying this this fiction genre, and so it is a it is a role-playing game where the characters are characters in an MMO and know it. So it's just like if you were playing an MMO and you have a guild. I don't know if the characters are the characters or the characters are the players, but it's the sort of thing where, like, you can actually have a conversation with an NPC where you go up to the NPC and, like, they just give you a quest. And because apparently this is a very old-school RPG, uh, MMORPG, like, if you die, you respawn, of course. I mean, it's not like you're dead when you die, but then you have to do a corpse run. The characters can actually have conversations in terms of how many hit points they have left and, like, what you have to do to pull that. It's, I don't know, It's, it's a, to, to me it's just a very interesting and distinctive kind of concept i mean come on you know half the time people talk like that in D anyway uh. yeah oh yeah <laughs> but i like that yeah i mean and, and gallant knight i they've done a number of things i think that they are probably best known for having done the they have like their tiny d6 system so they have like tiny dungeon and you know tiny survival and you know that but robert spooky robert denton actually did one of the setting books for tiny dungeon which was called Destiny of Tides. And if you wanted to buy a physical copy, um, you're, I think, out of luck, because they are gone. But all of these things, right, live on DriveThruRPG now, so you can either get PDFs or or order print-on-demand physical stuff. Let's see, uh, Artel Saurian, they have released, I think it's the first supplement for the Witcher role-playing game. It's like a mini booklet Lords and Lands, along with the Game Master screen. They've also just now released the starter kit for Cyberpunk Red. That's the new version of the Cyberpunk tabletop game, which, you know, unsurprisingly, they they hope and I think will like get traction because there's the Cyberpunk 2077 video game coming out, and that's probably going to be a big deal. It's breathtaking. That's all I know is it's breathtaking. Yeah, so I know that they sold out of everything that they had for the Cyberpunk Red starter kit, and I know that there's a couple of other Cyberpunk things around. So I think Artal has, I don't know, some sort of skirmish combat game called Friday Night Firefight. And also, although I don't think it, ha- I don't know if it has anything to do with Artal or not, even in a financial sense, because I don't know how all of these licensing things work around. Simon, uh, because th- I think this says something about me as a gamer, right? Like Simon, best known for all of these like gorgeous miniatures and stuff. They've broadened their horizon, but that's still kind of like what they're best known for. I look at their display case, and what am I most interested that they announced a Cyberpunk 27, 2077 card game, uh, right? So yeah. I don't. But so I mean, right? It's one of those things where like, oh, Artel owns cyber- the Cyberpunk name, and then the video game company licenses that, and that is separately being licensed over to Simon to do a card game. Lord only knows. But that's you know coming out sometime next year too. But I'm definitely looking forward to see the full version of of Cyberpunk 
red because for some reason they felt it would be silly to call it Cyberpunk 2020. I don't know. <laughs> and then Renegade Games, in association with Hunter Entertainment, that group has a couple of new things on the horizon. So there is going to be an altered carbon role-playing game, it looks like, which is a show that I enjoyed watching once I finally got around to it on Netflix. And also, they're making a role-playing game. I guess it's a a, a 5E-compatible role-playing game called Wardlings, which is, I kid you not, based on some WizKids miniatures. So I guess WizKids made these miniatures, and the miniatures are like little pairs. It's like a little kid adventurer, and then their you know, animal companion, familiar, whatever it is. But they were just miniatures. They weren't associated with anything, but they're like adorable. And so, so this 5e supplement is going to then basically create a setting and, or not, I guess I shouldn't say 5e supplement, this 5e compatible game is going to create a setting around them where you have this town where kids have powers. Like they can cast spells and do magic and stuff, but the adults can't. And one of the particular things that they noted is like, well, it's little kids, so what do you do about something like death? So the characters can't die, but you know, you start out at like as as you're like seven years old or whatever. But every time that you otherwise would die, you are whisked back to safety, and then you wake up a year older, and therefore a year closer to losing all of your powers. So I thought that was interesting. So I guess you can always. I mean, I, you can already buy the the little minis that go with it from WizKids. But I'm going to throw this now to an interview with the Modifius, at the Modifius booth about what is going on with them and role-playing games. I'm here at the Modifius booth on Thursday, the first day of Gen Con, and it is popping right here. But I'm here to talk with Sam Webb. The We've come up with an official title of Head RPG Person for Sam at uh, Modifius. Uh, so you have... Modifius has really uh, expanded its offerings, I think it's fair to say, in the last year. I mean, you're telling me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's mad. We, we were literally, like, hiding the bodies yesterday. It's like, where do we put all this cardboard? <laughs> As we were taking stuff out and putting on the on the shelves and stuff. But it's just insane how much we do have. And we've expanded as a company in the last couple of years, like, threefold. It's been incredible. Absolutely incredible. Uh, yeah, I remember when it was... Uh, you'd come by here and it would be... Uh, Mute. Oh crud! I'm forgetting which I mean, mutant, like mutant game you are. Mutant Chronicles. That was one of the first. Mutant Chronicles. And then, and then it was a big deal when you got Star Trek. And now there's like Fallout miniatures game, and there's Conan and John Carter and all these other stuff like yeah, yeah. miniatures and RPGs. All the Kickstarters coming up to roost, right? <laughs> so they're all coming out now. And we've got like the first couple of waves of both Conan and Infinity out the door. So we've got a lot of that product out on, the, on display too. So lots of supplements, uh, the core books, obviously, stuff like that. John Carter of Mars is new at Gen Con this year because we managed to get that uh, the first wave of the Kickstarter out earlier this year. Um, and then the second wave of that is coming out later on in the year. Um, Star Trek is here and that was my first Gen Con a couple of years ago which was awesome because that was my little baby <laughs> and to see people queue up for that and get it straight away on that Thursday was incredible and we did a really really good run of uh, like an amount of that we had just like a pile of it and it just like was slowly going down over the course of the weekend it was awesome so we've got that with Fallout Wasteland Warfare RPG uh, which is the standalone expansion to the miniatures game 
Um, and we've got a big pile of that now, which is slowly going down over the course of today. Um, and we've been absolutely crazy busy. It's only a couple of hours in, and we've had a queue all the way around the booth, on the very edges if you're listening, Gen Con exhibitors, because <laughs> we, we stuck to the law. But yeah, we've been, we have this queue all the way around, and uh, people just like... We, we couldn't put the stock for some of the exclusive stuff for the miniatures game on the shelves fast enough. People were just grabbing it out of our hands. It was, it was crazy, but it's awesome. Yeah, so for Fallout, is the role-playing game standalone, or do you need the like the miniatures game core to have what you need to play that? Yes. <laughs> no, so like, so it's a standalone expansion, so you can absolutely play it like a role-playing game. You just buy the book. Um, it does need the dice um, that come with the miniatures game. You can buy those separately. Um, and then, because uh, that's got a D20 and some custom D12s in it. And then that uses the core mechanics of the miniatures game to make a role-playing game, basically. And then we're currently developing the 2D20 version of the Fallout role-playing game, which is going to be one of our more traditional, like, big hardback books with loads of fluff, um, loads of uh, cool gaming material uh, based on our 2D20 system, again. Um, and I'm currently working on the alpha of that right now. So that's in development and should be out next year, hopefully, he says. Yeah, no, and, and I, I always appreciate how, like, you you, you all use the you like reuse the 2d20 system but there's always a really significant amount of modification to yeah. suit whatever the the setting is yeah it's not just a skin like we don't <laughs> just kind of put put the fallout flavor on put the vault boy on there we go to print um we do we do a lot of redevelopment work every time so star trek adventures is different from infinity which is different from conan which is different from john carter john carter being one of the kind of standout versions where actually it's a bit more simplified you don't have any skills you add a couple of your attributes together you roll the dice balls and it's just a bit more pulpy you know science uh, romance uh, kind of fiction and so yeah every single one is different in their own way because then i think you get a better appreciation of the ip what i hear a lot about star trek adventures from people which i love is that it feels like you are living star trek when you're playing the game it has that mentality or that ethos about it and that's what we do every time i think this is i really value i know it does i i like the techno babble rules i thought those were really good in in star trek and yeah like yeah john carter has the i'm I am some adventure man from Barsoom. Of course I know how to use a rifle and fly an air skiff. What's a skill? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> I can do all the things, because why not? Yeah. All right, now, Modifius is also now one of the, uh, along with Onyx Path, I, I believe, one of the companies that is going to be making more Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition books. And you, I know you've got a, I think you've got a slate that's going to, maybe we'll start seeing PDFs later this year, or uh, what, what's going on with that? Yeah, so you should be seeing PDFs by the end of this year for both the starter set and the player's guide. So we'll be doing a box starter set, a bit like a D&D starter set or like the, the Star Trek Adventures starter set that we have. So it will include a kind of learn-to-play chronicle straight out of the box, uh, as well as the dice you need and all that kind of stuff. So we're working on that at the moment. Um, and like I say, we'll hopefully get out of the PDFs this year and then um, both of these products should be landing in Q1 next year. Um, as we get them developed and produced. And then um, the Player's Guide, which is a bit more of an expansion on the core rulebook. So it gives you different options, gives you more advice um, on um, kind of running the game, running a chronicle, also some more safety tips and that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, that's uh, drafted up at the moment. And then, yeah, we'll be going into, like, full editing and layout and stuff pretty soon. Yeah, well, and am I recalling correctly that the Player's Guide is going to see rules for the remainder of the 13 clans? I believe so. 
Yeah, that is the plan. I'm not like super close to it. My, loft, my lofty, lofty head RPG dude uh, title means that I kind of I look at spreadsheets and budgets all day. But Matt Timms is working really hard on uh, the line um, and has been a fan for ages, um, and so it's in some really good hands now uh, with us. And um, yeah, so should be out pretty soon. Hopefully, we get some preview stuff out pretty soon, maybe. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I. I, I do things like make spreadsheets to plan what I'm doing at Gen Con. So, I mean, you're, that must be a blast for you all day long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a job, it turns out, like any other, with responsibilities and spreadsheets. You don't, you don't just budgets. get to play games all day? No. No. I want to debunk that myth right away. This is a full job. I, eat, I answer emails and I make spreadsheets. I do not play games. Although, to be honest with you, the, the team we work at, we work with a kind of like a core RPG team of like five people in the office and a couple of people external. But I make sure that we do like a Thursday afternoon, we always like play something like a little indie game or we play maybe like, like Fiasco we played a couple of weeks ago because I know it quite well. And so we play lots of different stuff to get an appreciation of what's out there in the market too. I think it's important, you know. Because why work in a game company if you can't play a game every so often, you know? I, I would think. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks. It was great talking to you, Sam. Oh, no problem. Thanks very much. So that ended up there talking about Vampire the Masquerade. There is definitely some other Vampire the Masquerade things going on aside from the core role-playing stuff that's being worked on by Modiphius and Onyx Path. But first... We're going to let Jay talk about what I believe is his favorite Gen Con activity. I mean, it's definitely up there. It's certainly the most time-consuming. For me, personally, this this is what I did the most time-wise at Gen Con this year. And that is True Dungeon. For those of you who are not familiar with True Dungeon and haven't listened to previous years when I've talked at length about True Dungeon, True Dungeon is sort of what would happen if... Dungeons and Dragons, LARPing, a horror house, puzzle rooms, and table shuffleboard all got together and had a kid. Uh, it is this incredibly cool thing. I would definitely recommend go look at their website if you haven't, if you haven't before and go watch some of the videos to see some of the things they've got. They've got crazy animatronics, lots of props. NPCs and costumes, all sorts of crazy production values going on. Uh, so this is taking over a large chunk of Lucas Oil Stadium. The way it works, they've got several different adventures. For a given adventure, you, you've got seven rooms that you need to get through. You have 12 minutes in each room. A room is either going to be a puzzle room, in which case... It's like in a little mini escape room. There's some sort of puzzle that's explained to you. And this can be things like one of them this year, there were animatronic skulls that were singing a song and you had to figure out from the lyrics of the song that, oh, the weapons scattered around the room. They wanted specific ones brought to specific skulls. And once you did that, the barrier would be released or another one. You came into this room full of ruins. And you had to find, in, hidden in the room is a, a roll of parchment that you would then wrap around a column. And that would give you the clue to how these blo styrofoam blocks needed to be stacked up in a certain way to, again, um, open the door that would let you progress. 
Or there can be combat rooms where they're going to have an NPC, and some of these are people in, in costumes, and the costumes are just crazy. One of my favorite, I really wish they allowed you to take pictures, but I get why they don't. One of my favorites was there was a woman in this room who's like a half snake person, where her lower body is a snake, and she's just gliding around the room. I think behind the scenes, it's some sort of like bicycle contraption, but when you're in the room, just watching her move around effortlessly, it's incredible to see, especially as you start focusing on the combat and you turn around and suddenly she's right there, she snuck up on you. But it it's interesting how they do the combat. So, so a, a big part of True Dungeon is is the tokens. They're these poker chip sized things uh, that when you go into the dungeon, you get a tin pack. But you can also just buy packs from them regularly, and it's it's sort of its own collectible card game level thing. Where the pack you've got a rare, you've got a couple uncommons, you've got a lot more commons. There are ultra rares that are expensive, and some of these tokens can be hundreds of dollars because they're that rare and that good. But it's when you start the dungeon, you build out your character by you you have your base stats, but then you'll like oh this token represents my armor, so you you quote unquote equip that. Here's some boots and you know very. MMO RPG type thing where you fill all of your different slots with tokens that all have stats and are adding to your stats. So that's going you through and setting up your stats to go through. You also have, so the weapons are tokens too, and they have, you can identify a weapon because it's got numbers around the edge. And so the way combat works is they have this think shuffleboard or air hockey or dry erase board that at one end of it is a picture of the monster you're fighting and that has numbers on it like one through 20 and you have little almost air hockey hockey pucks that you put your weapon token in and then you stand at the other end and you slide it towards the monster and then whichever number that you you're, you land on, it's like D&D, where that's the die roll that you rolled on your D20. So, like, if you slide an 18 and your attack bonus is a plus 5, and the monster's AC is only a 22, you hit, you do some damage. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. They've got amazing production values going in this. One of them, the final monster of one of them this year, was this giant animatronic demon thing that it's meant to be. It's flying over your party, so you have to you have to attack him with ranged weapons. And so the actual physical thing in the room is up on on a piston system, and so it's actually not directly over you, but it's flying up in the air over your party as you watch him. They also, like, there was another puzzle that they've got a projector going, and you all have to figure out how to manipulate what the projector is showing onto a table to accomplish your goal. And Yeah, it's, it is a lot of fun. It is, it is, can be quite time-consuming. 
it can be quite expensive if you let it be. I'm trying not to, but, <laughs> you know, it's the temptation certainly there. One of the things I do like, you as a party, so there's 10 of you at a time. Everybody has a different class. Though, unlike your situation where you got stuck with a goblin, they were smart enough. There are 10, 12 different class options. So, no matter what, even if you're the last one in the room as far as party selection goes, you're still going to have three that you're going to get to choose from. But so, yeah, you, everyone, there, there's 10 of you, everyone gets a class. So, you can, as a party, you get to choose dif the difficulty level that you want to do. If you're all new at it, you can can choose non-lethal, which means they're not going to kill you, but your rewards are not going to be as good. At the end, you do get XP for tracking stuff, and you also you get treasure at the end of it. But then you can you can nor you could do the normal difficulty, which is probably what you want to do if you don't have a lot of experience. But we were lucky enough this year. Uh, to get with groups with people with some amount of experience. And so we were able to do uh, the more hardcore difficulty, which is, it is harder. The monsters are tougher. The monsters are doing more damage, but presumably you've got more equipment. And so you're able to take that on. And then the rewards at the end are also going to be better because you've, you've ta taken on a harder difficulty. So this year they had five different events that they were doing they have the three story modules which is they've got this continuing story arc that is multi-year and that is tying these these three into this larger story arc and they they chain together and in fact if you can, if you can get it they are numbered one two and three and that is the order that the story progresses though they intentionally make it that you know you can do Two, one, three, or whatever order is, doesn't completely break because it's hard to get tickets to this thing. Then they have this year it was called Odin's Redux, which is the new player sealed deck event. Which, if you're interested and you can get a ticket to that, I would definitely recommend because it is it's very new player friendly. They are expecting you to be a newer player and not know not know all of the ins and outs of what's going on. They're going to help you a lot more. And so you have a gear parody. So you don't have the people, you know, you don't have the guy who spent $10,000 on this coming in and just making a joke out of it. It's sealed, sealed deck. You, you get your 10 pack of tokens at the start and that's all the tokens that you're allowed to use in there. Uh, and then the final thing, Final thing that I quite enjoy is called True Grind, which is, they started this a few years ago, they really just streamlined it to just the fight the monsters part of it. So this is not actually in the dungeon with the crazy production values and all of the that nonsense. It's It was off in the side, a side area of the convention center, or sorry, of the, of the Lucas Oil Stadium, and it's just three boards full of monsters and all you do is is slide and fight monsters no puzzles so yeah i did the three modules in the true grind this year and had a lot of fun with that i would recommend if this sounds like it's something interesting that you check it out though at gen con the tickets are going to sell out pretty quick 
they do come to other cons. For instance, they've announced recently that this is the first year they're going to be at PAX West, so I'm going to check them out there. They've been at PAX South. They've been at Origins. And there's another one in the Midwest that I don't remember the name of that they're going to be at in November. And so those those times are cheaper and, depending on where you are, probably easier to get to, certainly easier to get tickets for, ways to experience the the insanity that is True Dungeon. All right, I think I've blathered on enough about it. Uh, it's definitely a fun thing. I would definitely recommend it if you get a chance. At the very least, go check out their website, watch the videos, and see some of the crazy animatronics and NPCs and stuff that they've got going on in there. Okay, well, I've, I have a personal question I have to ask, though, and I, I don't know the answer to this, and so Jay has to be c- completely honest. So I don't know that I really have anything new to say about it, so I'm not going to really go into this year. But as as always, I did a tabletop game math trade at Gen Con. So, like, a bunch of people get together, trade things around. One of the items I traded for was a stack of True Dungeon tokens. Now, I'm, my presumption is that since someone else was trading these off, these were like, like these were junk. But I was just like, I traded for them, and then I handed them to Jay. Go, go play True Dungeon. So I'm curious, was there anything in there that was in any way, shape, or form useful, or was it all just like, uh, I will give these back to someone for like a 10 cent credit? Well, so one of the nice things about the True Dungeon tokens that they they have done is they have what's called transmuting. So Every token that you've got, even the most worthless for for its stat block common, you can take and you're going to need a large quantity of them, but you can turn them into True Dungeon and get back crafting materials. And then you take those crafting materials and and you're able to build some of the more expensive, better, crazier tokens. For instance, last year's theme was sort of a Norse theme. So one of the normal tokens was a throwing hammer that you could get. But then by with the crafting system, you could transform it into a better throwing hammer. And then eventually, and this is going to take, this takes a lot of crafting material, but you could transform it into effectively Mjolnir. They didn't want to call it that, but it was Thor's returning throwing hammer or something like that, plus five. So, yeah, I don't think there was... There were a couple of, in, in that bundle that you gave me, a couple of the old amusing, like, here's a water skin that you can use for stuff. <laughs> but, yeah, most of them realistically are going to be the type that I will probably at some point turn in to get crafting materials to get better stuff, so... Well, hey, that's at least something. That that's yeah. funny. That actually reminds me of like MTG Arena, right? Like when you open extra, like there's no trading, like there would be for the physical stuff. So when you open extras of commons and things, they they become wild cards, which you uh, can then you know turn in for you know a different common or right. an uncommon or you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah. Okay, so we heard from Modiphius about what's going on with their side of the Vampire the Masquerade role-playing game for 5th edition. But like I said, there are some other vampire things going on. There's the Heritage board game. Uh, that was on Kickstarter earlier, so I don't know how much of an ability there is to like go pre-order that now, maybe, but the the sort of... I don't know. I think I just got my backer... I got my after... A little bit after Gen Con, I got the whole like backer survey 
Or do you want to add on more things and give us more money stage of the Kickstarter? Uh, <laughs> there is a another board game called Chapters, which I will admit is not the most evocative name, that is going to be on Kickstarter. It is one of those Kickstarters that has like a bonus if you do on day one. So like, you know, Googling for their website and signing up for their mailing list so you get a notice when the Kickstarter is out is the sort of thing that you might want to do if it interests you. And that's more of a low level, I would say low levels and low power level, like more storytelling sort of game where like you can play through a prelude and you have things where you have to make decisions with a, you have like kind of a character sheet and make decisions about how you respond to situations. But that is coming to Kickstarter. There's also another card game called Vendetta. And I feel like there's probably a a name for this type of game that is escaping me right now. But you play it over several rounds, but in each round there are several locations that you are fighting over. And so people are playing their cards out. They may be face up, they may be face down, and then like you have all the fights at the locations, and you steal blood from each other and, and gain influence over whatever it was at the location that you were trying to gain influence over. There's definitely politicking in it and trying to fake people out, and where do you want to win, and where do you just want to be involved, but then you can get benefits from the fight that aren't even, uh, you know, even if you're you're not winning, and that's Vendetta. I also played a Vampire the Masquerade mega game. Ooh, fancy. Mini mega game? I mean, this was a... So it was... So, one, it was run in a two-hour slot. So if you've played, like, a full-on mega game, that's not a two-hour activity. No. Right? So it was, so it was run in a... two-hour per round activity. Well, the, God, God help you. I'm going to convince you they may be all-day or six-hour slots or, or that kind of thing. It's the sort of thing, the sort of mechanics you have at the mega game, right? So, you know, we had like a team of four people and one person was on the council and one person was over at the market. I feel kind of bad for the person at the market that did not really feel like a full person's worth of work. I remember like when they were explaining what the positions are, it was like, oh, I, I, I hope there's someone on my team who wants to man the market station because that does not sound interesting. That's, that seems to be like with, I mean, depending on, like, for certain styles of mega game, that seems to be the sort of, uh, like, an Achilles heel sometimes. It's like it's like it's got fun stuff to do for, like, you know, 80% of the players, but then there's one section that they kind of need to, like, give it a little bit more to do. Either it, it gets repetitive there or it, anyhow. But this is a little short one, Vampire the Mask or anything. And so I, I think the sort of what one interesting strategic thing on this is that you've got these votes going on in council and you've got battle for control of the city and you've got different give, issuing different orders and like everybody's at these different things and how can you communicate and all that kind of stuff but actually winning was based entirely on your ambitions which would be different cards that would give you that's oh you're really trying to do this you're really trying to do that and it may be that okay it generates resources to succeed on the board but that doesn't have anything to do with how you are going to earn victory points this game so my team ended with a spectacular, not a single point whatsoever. So nice. we're awesome. Uh, <laughs> this is like golf, where that's good, right? <laughs> sure, sure it was. I think everything epic ran that. So I, I had, I had fun with that. That's something that they have set up, and I don't know exactly what other places they're going to be at, but I, I imagine that's the sort of thing that will appear at other 
sort of cons, and it gives a, I mean, one, if you like vampire, hey, that's a thing to do, but it also, like, that's a much, it's very fast-paced compared to a, your more traditional mega game, but it, it does give that same sort of feel and a similar sort of experience without committing six hours or all day long to one event, or because that's a big commitment, especially at somewhere like Gen Con. This one in particular was very nice because they ran it multiple times a day, and one of the times that they ran it was 8 in the morning. There's a lot less going on at 8 in the morning, so I was like, that is great. I'm able to sign up for this event and do it at 8 and not have to, like, fight with the seven other things, like, for, like, the 2 o'clock in the afternoon slot. So that was very nice. I don't know what quantity of people want more 8 a.m. events, but I'm one of them. Because, <laughs> like we said earlier, sleep, optional. So that was the role-playing game sort of stuff that we did at Gen Con. And so our next episode will then shift to covering your board and card game activities. For that episode or this episode, if you come to our website and there will be uh, show notes, uh, there will be a page for each episode and there will be show notes on that that has uh, links to the various games that we have talked about today, games or activities, to the extent we can. I'm pretty sure there's no link I can put up to like the thermal plastic crafting thing, but to the extent that we can, there will be, uh, there will be links up to that. And you can find us there at www.strangeassembly.com. You can download episodes of the podcast there as well, or you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, Google Play Music Store, Podbean. There is a podcatcher you use and you don't see us on that. I would like to rectify that situation, so please let me know. I can be reached at chris at strangeassembly.com. I always love to hear your comments, criticism, uh, and other feedback. We can also be found uh, at Strange Assembly on Twitter, Strange Assembly on Facebook, Strange Assembly on Instagram. There's still a trickle of Gen Con photos coming out over there. But for Jay Earl, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. And you're all breathtaking. <laughs>